Hello everyone, my name is Sophia and welcome back to another episode of Project Oyster. Today we have a really special episode that we've actually been organizing for a while now. If you follow us on social media, you might have noticed that a few weeks ago we asked for you guys to submit any questions you might have for a resident psychiatrist. This is because our guest speaker today is Dr. Bharat Sympathy, who happens to be a former gun student of the graduating class of 2010. His experiences with the first suicide cluster in 2009 during his high school years led him to becoming a current resident psychiatrist psychiatrist resident at um, Kaiser in San Jose. Today, he is here to share more about his past experiences, life journey, and answer some of the questions you guys might have submitted. So, Vrat, how are you doing today? I'm good. Um, glad to be here. I'm glad you guys are doing this. Mm -hmm. I think this podcast is really cool and great way to kind of talk about mental health. So, I guess, like, how did you discover us and, like, why was, the, why was recording this episode so important to you? Yeah, so actually, um, one of my supervising physicians at uh, Kaiser, um, you know, dropped off the Palo Alto Weekly one day and said, like, hey, look at this. There's like a podcast going on at Gun, talking about mental health and trying to kind of fight against a stigma against mental health. And I was like, well, that's like one of the main reasons I'm going into psychiatry. And I thought it'd be cool to find out more about, you know, what you guys are doing. And now that I'm a, you know, a resident trainee mm -hmm. see if there's any questions you know high school students had in terms of mental health that I could help out with yeah I also think I think it's important that um gun kids are listening to this especially since you did experience it like what we're going through what we're living through right now is because Absolutely. of what happened in the past mm -hmm. so um now time to move on to our submitted audience questions unfortunately there were honestly so many good ones that we are unable to answer all of them in our episode today however uh, when Bra has extra time later he'll hopefully be answering some of the other questions that we won't be getting to today and those will be posted at another time so Bra has chosen some of his favorite ones today and I guess what is the first one I think uh, one of the questions I thought um, was a good one was how, I mean, starting off with kind of how I was personally affected by the suicides at gun. Um, when I was a junior in 2009, um, one of my friends on my tennis team had actually died by suicide. Um, and I remember it being a very, you know, tragic experience, you know, he was very well liked by a lot of people. Um, and it was hard for, for many people at the school, you know, not just students, but teachers, you know, our coaches. And the interesting thing was when that happened, I didn't really know how to process that loss, um, you know, because I, re um, you know, I hadn't really heard about mental health before, didn't really know what it was about. I was just focused on, you know, my grades and, you know, getting into college. So, you know, that experience kind of just like, <clears throat> um, came and went. Uh, but then when I was a first year medical student, my younger brother's uh, close friend uh, in 2015, I believe, um, also died by suicide. And that hit me a lot harder because I'd seen, you know, him and my brother grow up playing basketball together. And I think that's when I had enough uh, maturity to understand that in myself, I had a lot of stigma against mental health. And, you know, I couldn't really help my brother cope. I didn't have any skills to help myself cope. And that's when I realized like, whoa, there's this thing called mental health. There's this thing called psychiatry. And it's very important in terms of overall wellness and being happy. Um, so that's kind of how um, the suicides affected me personally. After my brother's experience, I took a year off from medical school and I worked um, <clears throat> in the child psychiatry department at Stanford, kind of working on adolescent suicide prevention and school mental health. And that's 
And then that kind of shaped the trajectory of where I am now in terms of being in a psychiatry residency program and hopefully coming back and working here in Palo Alto specifically. Uh, so I guess like a side question I have is you said that when you first experienced the student suicides during your junior year and also when your brother uh, was in high school, I guess uh, right now gun students and even Pali students might know that our uh, community has a large emphasis on mental health uh, and supporting mental health. And we have wellness centers and stuff now, but it sounds like from your story, there was none of that when you were a kid. Yeah. So when I was a junior, um, you know, I don't think there was a wellness center. Um, Cause I remember walking in to where all the counselors sit and I don't remember being there, there being a dedicated wellness center or a school mm-hmm. psychologist or licensed mental health professionals. It could have been that I just didn't know they existed which I think was a problem um, for a little bit in terms of knowing what we have access to back then. Um, But when my brother uh, was in high school, six years later, I think they had implemented a wellness center by then. And there was a lot more structured resources for uh, students to get mental health help if they needed. So I think a lot of things were set in place, um, you know, around 2009 moving forward to kind of create a more um, vibrant mental health uh support support system mm-hmm. at gun yeah so and Pally. you definitely think that your experiences as a high schooler especially since mental health wasn't really i'm assuming wasn't really discussed when you were a high schooler has definitely changed how it is now yeah i think we had like living skills classes you know where we talked about mental health briefly but mm-hmm. i think now with you know um sources of strength and like some of these like peer-run programs mm-hmm. um those weren't really around when I was in high school. So overall, there's just a lot more support, I feel like. that's Yeah, that's good to hear that, you know, gun and our community has really shifted because of these experiences to benefit the future. So that's really Absolutely. nice to hear. So I guess, um, what's another question that you got that you'd like to answer? Yeah, let's see. Um, I thought another interesting question was, what would you suggest to someone whose parents do not believe in mental health? Uh, so that's a very important question. And a and a difficult question to answer. But, you know, I think, you know, there's a generational gap, right? You know, so, um, you know, parents are, you know, older and the older people are, the less mental health was kind of emphasized, you know, back in the day. So it's hard sometimes to have your parents understand what it means to be suffering from depression or anxiety, having thoughts that, you know, life might not be worth living or wanting to sleep and not really wake up. So I think the best way to handle that situation is psychoeducation because, you know, parents in those situations, unfortunately, just aren't educated about the matter. And the best way to kind of handle that is try to try to to teach them. So there's this website called herdalliance.org, H-E-A-R-D-A-L-L-I-A-N-C-E.org that basically has a plethora of resources for teachers, students, families, mental health professionals with like books, podcasts, websites on understanding mental health. Mm -hmm. So using a website like that to educate your parents would be a great stepping stone to kind of get them to support you if they don't really believe in mental health. Um, You know, the next thing is, uh, I don't know if you've heard, but Stanford has this group called Stanford Chipao. Mm-hmm. Um, which is basically run by Stanford psychiatrists. And what they do is they have like these drama sessions with parents only where they act out difficult um, interactions. Like how do you handle 
a student, I mean, a, a child that says they're depressed? How do you handle a child that's um, maybe self engaging in self-harm behavior and cutting? How do you handle a child that's struggling academically? Um, and it kind of normalizes mental health and in, in a kind of a fun way, because there's a lot of comedy involved as well. So Stanford Chipao has these events, you know, a couple of times a year that parents can go to and kind of realize like, well, there's all these other parents just like me that don't really know much about mental health, but this, and then it kind of makes it easier for them to accept the fact that it exists. Mm -hmm. uh, the next thing is, um, you know, one of my mentors was telling me that Gunn now has a school psychologist and licensed mental health professionals. So the next thing you could do if you have a parent that doesn't believe in mental health and you need help is go to a trusted adult, you know, go to the psychologist, the licensed mental health professionals, um, and tell them, you know, that you're struggling with something and you need help. And they might be able to actually help you bridge the gap that exists between you and your parents. And I know there's concern, you know, as a teenager, if I were to do that, I'd be like, oh, my parents are going to, you know, oh, they're going to kill me, <laughs> yeah. you know, because I'm going and getting help, like, you know, behind their back. But um, you got to look at the costs, uh, you know, the benefits and the risk, right? I mean, the reward is much greater than the risk involved, because if you're getting your parents to believe in mental health, ultimately, you're doing what's best for you. So seeing an adult, you know, a counselor, something like that would be great. Uh, you can also, you know, contact your local pediatrician um, and just tell them that you need a checkup and your pediatrician can meet with you um, privately and you can tell them like, hey, I'm struggling with, you know, some sort of mental health issue or depression, anxiety, and they can they can also help you bridge that gap between you and your parents. Um, you know, where I work at Kaiser, uh, you can actually, if you have Kaiser insurance, you can schedule appointments yourself as a teenager to go see a Kaiser mental health professional and they can work with you discreetly if it needs to get to that point. And then eventually they can also help you kind of bridge that gap and communicate with your parents to get them on the same page. And, you know, you know, ultimately it's like, I think parents can be concerned like, Oh, you know, I don't want you spending this time going to see a therapist, like talking to people. I want you to study, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. But in order to study and get good grades, you need to have a healthy brain. And if you're not happy, you don't have enough serotonin or the happy hormone in your brain and you're depressed, like that's something that needs to be treated. So kind of explaining that um, to parents is kind of a kind of good, good starting point. Yeah, I think it's important how you mentioned that a lot of times the reason parents might not understand mental health is just because they they weren't educated about it. Mm -hmm. So I think really educating your parents or helping them to understand where you're coming from is very important Absolutely. when it comes to addressing it. So what's the next question you would like to answer? Uh, any tips on how to take care of your mental health in your day-to-day -day life? Um, so I think the biggest thing there is kind of just identifying hobbies that you have. That could be going to the gym, um, you know, reading, knitting, could even be, you know, watching TV, um, like certain um, movies, like horror movies, if you're into horror movies, something that can allow you to escape, um, you know, life for a second. Um, because what these things do is, um, for example, with exercise, when you're exercising, have you, um, if you've heard of a runner's high, it's kind of like you get an endorphin release. It's a happy hormone that's released in your brain. And, you know, activities that bring you joy release happy hormones in your brain 
and that's and that's good um, for you in terms of taking care of your mental health. You want to make sure that you're feeling happy. So I think the thing that I recommend is just identifying a couple hobbies and really setting out some time every week to make sure you know you're doing that. So like for me, um, you know, I really try to make sure I go to the gym like at least three times a week. It's hard as a resident because the hours are really hard. I mean, long. Um, you know, I've been reading Stephen King novels. Um, try to read a couple pages here and there. Um, so just having something that you enjoy it doesn't have to be something you do by yourself. It could be, you know, getting coffee with your friends. Um, just something where you're, you, that allows you to feel happy and kind of um, separated from things that might be causing you stress. I guess a question I have about this topic is I know that when you're feeling down or you're feeling depressed, it's hard for you to motivate yourself mm -hmm. to try to find anything that makes you happy. So what do you, what would you have to say in a circumstance like that? Yeah. So that is actually, you know, that's a really hard uh, situation to be in because, you know, when you're sluggish, you're feeling down, you know, you don't really want to get out of bed. Uh, you know, your appetite is gone. Mm -hmm. Going to the gym just sounds like a pain. The thing is like, you have two decisions there, right? You could, you could do what you think is right in the moment, which is not do anything, right? Because that in the short term, that feels better. But in the long term, getting out and kind of activating your body mm -hmm. and like releasing some endorphins, like just getting out there um, is better. And unfortunately, at this point, you kind of just have to force yourself to do it. Um, there's no easy way around it. Um, you know, even for myself, there's times I don't want to go to the gym, but I'm like, I know if I go to the gym, like I'll feel better, better leaving it. and I'm just going to force myself to go. So then I kind of like, just like puff and puff over to the gym. And then after a couple minutes or like on the treadmill, I'll be like, you get into it. And then you're like, okay, this is, I'm glad that I got here. So there's no easy, easy fix there. Um, kind of just have to maintain a routine and force yourself to kind of get out there, um, to kind of get through the situation. So I think is routine important? In routine is routine is very important. You know, when I go to the gym, I always have a workout routine that I do and I don't leave the gym until I finish that routine. Cause I know if I just go there and I'm like, okay, I'm just going to do this weight or run on the treadmill. Like if I don't want to be there, I'll probably leave early. Mm -hmm. So, um, with a routine, like I have to finish the routine before I go. So like, that's like beneficial to you in the yeah. long run for those days that you don't want to be there. Absolutely, yeah. Um, what's another question you'd like to answer? Um, what is the difference between a psychiatrist, psychologist, and therapist? Yeah, it's funny. We got this question multiple times. Yeah, yeah before we did. So uh, a therapist is, gener is a very general term, and it encompasses a psychiatrist, a psychologist, a social worker, a marriage and family therapist, because all of them can engage in different therapeutic modalities, whether that's motivational interviewing, um, cognitive behavioral therapy, actually do the treatment, like talk therapy, right? Mm -hmm. But the difference specifically is that when you're a psychiatrist, you're actually, you know, a medical doctor. So you have to go through medical school, you have to go through residency. And in addition to doing therapy and, um, you know, research, you can prescribe medication. Psychologists, you know, they can have a PhD educational degree or a um, psychology degree, which means they can do research therapy, um, you know, those things just like a psychiatrist, but they actually can't prescribe medication. 
And then, you know, social workers and marriage family therapists are also people that go to, um, you know, have to get a master's. Um, and they generally focus on therapy and, um, you know, can also work in like hospital settings to help you, um, you know, if you ever hospitalize psychiatrically, social workers can help you find a place to go or resources once you leave the hospital. Um, so, and then a marriage and family therapist is kind of strictly kind of therapy. So all of them are therapists. It's just, you know, a psychiatrist is, you know, a medical doctor that can prescribe medications. Um, a psychologist, uh, essentially can do a lot of the things a psychiatrist does, but can't really, hasn't been through medical school and hasn't, doesn't have the ability to prescribe medication. So when most people think of, I guess, the generic term of therapist, psychologist is usually what they're thinking of in most cases. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. So, so the thing with psychiatrists is that they can kind of split their time between um, managing medications Mm -hmm. and, and working on therapy. But psychologists kind of work strictly on therapy. So I think when people talk about, you know, my therapist or I'm going to my therapist, it's it can it can usually be a psychologist or a marriage and family therapist. But sometimes it can even be a psychiatrist because we can also do therapy as well. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Any more questions? Um, I think there was a question on kind of the academic journey to becoming a psychiatrist. Um, You know, someone said they're interested in the field and want to know about just how to get there. Mm -hmm. So essentially, um, after four years of undergrad, um, you go to college and you have to do four years, wait, after four years of high school, (laughs) you do four years of undergrad, right? And uh, you don't necessarily need to major in anything science related. So I majored in economics. Um, All you need to do is um, fulfill the pre-med requirements. So there's like a couple bio classes you need to take, a couple like chemistry classes, physics classes. Um, They also want you to take philosophy sometimes and, and, you know, a language. So as long as you fulfill all those requirements, regardless of your major, uh, you can apply to medical school. So there's also the MCAT. I forget what it stands for, but it's like the test uh, that you need to take. um, It's kind of like the SAT for college. It's Mm -hmm. like for medical school. Um, you got to take that and then you apply to medical school. There's an interview process uh, in person. Uh, and then after that, once you get into medical school, there's four years of medical school. In that time, you rotate through uh, pretty much every specialty that exists and you find the specialty that you like. Um, for me, I was choosing between surgery and psychiatry, but kind of like what I had mentioned earlier, my experiences with uh, going to gun and some of the tragedies here shape push me towards psychiatry, but you can choose internal medicine, you know, really anything. Um, and then you apply to residency after medical school. And once you're in residency, you're, you're you have your license, right? You're a doctor, but um, now you're further. Well, you don't have your license. There's multiple licensing exams. You have like the degree, uh, like a doctorate in medicine. And then, there's and you further specialize in in the field that you you're going into so for me that's psychiatry that's a four-year program for orthopedic surgery it's a five-year program i think for cardiothoracic surgery you can be anywhere from seven to nine years Mm -hmm. after medical school so it really kind of depends on what you choose so that's the general process um you know for uh getting from high school to being a psychiatrist 
So what exactly is a residency since you say you are a residency? Yeah, so a residency is, so medical school is kind of like the bare bones, right? You kind of do a little bit of everything. Mm -hmm. In um, residency, you you focus on the the specialty you're in. So for me, you know, I'll spend like two months doing inpatient psychiatry, which is basically when people are having... um, you know, if they're suicidal or manic from a bipolar disorder and they have to stay in a locked facility, you know, I've worked there for two months. I've just come off two months of addiction psychiatry, working with people who um, suffer from substance abuse. Um, you rotate through inpatient medicine. So you're working with inpatient medicine doctors to get some more experience in general medicine. Uh, then you start practicing therapy during your second year. So you're essentially trained in all the different modalities that there are to be a psychiatrist. So once you graduate and you're a psychiatrist, you have kind of all the tools necessary to, to practice. I see. Because cool. coming out of medical school, you don't really have those tools. You just kind of have that bare medical uh, degree. So I guess like being a resident is more of going out and experiencing what you would do as yes. a psychiatrist. Yes, and, and, and learning um, the tools and uh, things needed to to be a psychiatrist. Great. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think another question we had here was how would you suggest, oh, how do you know if the, if the therapist is right for you? Or oh, not? yeah. So that's a, that's a good question. Um, you know, unfortunately, or fortunately, um, sometimes it takes multiple, you know, therapists to find the therapist that works for you. So some of the questions that you want to ask are, you know, the first question is, do you like your therapist? You know, when you talk to them, do you like them? Mm-hmm. Are you, ex- are they accepting, compassionate? Are you open to sharing your, 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 your insecurities or your story? Do you feel like you can be an open book with them? Do you feel like they actually listen? Mm-hmm. You know, do they remember things that you said three or four weeks ago that, you know, that were like very minute in detail? Are they actually paying attention? And you also want to find a therapist that has expertise in what you're struggling with. So whether that's depression, anxiety, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder, or different therapy, therapy modalities like interpersonal therapy, motivational therapy, you want to find someone that's an expert in what you want to do. Um, and then also kind of like just as you're working with them, seeing if you're feeling any better, are you getting to where you want to be? That's an important question to ask as well. And And you'll realize that therapists also understand that, you know, it doesn't always work with every um, patient that they have. So they're completely open. They'll be completely open to you saying like, Hey, I don't think this is for the most part that this is working out. And I want to find someone else that I feel like I can connect with or that can help Mm -hmm. me more. So um, kind of asking all those questions, you know, taking it appointment by appointment, seeing how it's going um, is kind of how I would recommend um, figuring out if the therapist is right for you and, you know, kind of subliminally, you'll know, you know, when you're working with someone that like, wow, I really like, I can like just be myself in front of this person. And they're, and the way we're working is just make, making me feel a lot better. Mm-hmm. So like that overall holistic feeling that you have also when you're working with someone in particular is, is um, something to keep in mind. So I guess uh, like a question more um, in depth for this question is how many because you see a therapist maybe once or some once a week or something like mm-hmm. that. Uh, do you think after a certain period of time you should be able to know? Because I know in the beginning for like your first one or two sessions, it yeah. might be like awkward or yeah. kind of weird. But do you think like it definitely takes time to build a relationship? Yeah. So that that's that's hard, right? Because for some after like 
for some, you know, after one or two sessions, mm-hmm. you'll be like, this is not for me. But for some, as you were saying, you know, it's kind of awkward because you don't really know the person and mm-hmm. it takes some time to build a relationship. So, you know, even after a couple months, if if you feel like it's not working, it's okay to switch, you know, because you need to do what's best for you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so to kind of answer that question, um, you know, it really varies in terms of the situation. It could be a couple sessions with the person. It could be like a couple months with that therapist um, before you really understand or realize that um, this is the therapist for me or this mm-hmm. is the therapist that's not for me. Great. Yeah. Um, if I'm not mistaken, I think our final question today was, what do you think suicides have said about our community, especially since as someone who did grow up here? Yeah. So I think, you know, I think it's easy, you know, when, when suicides happen, they're, they're a tragedy, right? It's easy to kind of be like, you know, oh, it was because of this or because of that. But in reality, we don't know everything that happened before, you know, um, a teenager, unfortunately, got to the point where they felt like, you know, life was not worth living. So I think what it says about our community is that ultimately there's individuals that suffer from mental illness, just like any other community. This is not unique to Palo Alto. You know, there's a lot of factors that go into stress, depression, and suicidal thoughts, right? It could be genetics. You could be, you could have a family, you know, with mental illness. You could have substance abuse as affecting your thought process, lack of sleep, family dynamics, you know, relationships, you know, breaking up with someone that you've been dating for a long time, you know, your own sexuality, academic stress, all of those things kind of come into play um, when someone, you know, has thoughts, you know, that life is not worth living. So, Ultimately, I think it says, you know, that, you know, there's been a lot of like negative publicity um, towards Palo Alto in terms of like the suicides that happened in the past. So I think it's kind of magnified. But honestly, I think it just says that just like any other community, there are teens that suffer from mental illness. Um, Is Palo Alto known to be kind of a rigorous community where academics is really important? Yes. Mm -hmm. Is that the only reason or like the main reason you know, that we've struggled with um, suicide clusters, I would be hesitant to say that because mm-hmm. there's so many other things involved in, in um, you know, shaping one's decision-making process. I also definitely think that since you were of the graduating class of 2010 and now Hannah Verdon and I are of the graduating class of 2020, just in these 10 years, I think there's clearly been a lot of changes that our community has implemented to help students. And I think that also says something about how our community, at least from the outside, we are seen in a very negative light sometimes of people thinking that, oh, um, that community, they're always, it's like so negative because all these situations have happened. But I think it kind of shows how we've been able to build ourselves up. And sometimes the press doesn't show that, but things are happening in this community. Yeah, you know, when I was in college and uh, or like, you know, I'd come back from the summer and I'd be like, oh, I went to gun high school. Mm-hmm. You know, people would be like, oh, you went to the suicide high school? Yeah. Like, you know, just the publicity has just been unfortunate, you know, over the last decade, um, decade plus. But, um, you know, people in the community know that, um, you know, we're not just a suicide school, right? Yeah. There's so many strengths at gun. We, um, so many people are thriving. Every school has someone that's struggling, mm-hmm. you know, but uh, the publicity was definitely something difficult that we had to overcome. Yeah. 
I guess this, um, I know we said that was our last question, but I see like it kind of transitions into the next, another one, which is how do you think schools are responsible? How much do you think schools should be responsible for the mental health of their students? Yeah. So that's, you know, that's a tough question, you know, cause I think the way I would ask it, I mean, I would answer that is that I think schools should take active efforts to ensure that their students are healthy and living happily and receiving assistance when deemed necessary. Mm-hmm. The problem is like, when I was at Gun, there's 2,000. I don't know how many people there are at Gun now, but people are going to, you know, fall under the radar, you know? Like, it's really hard to identify every single person that needs help. So, you know, I think it's, it's hard for, you know, schools to just have the main responsibility of finding people that are, you know, struggling with depression or anxiety. But I think... Um, Schools are doing what they can, right? The Wellness Center at Gunn, the Wellness Center at Palo Alto, like those are huge steps forward. You know, having a school psychiatrist, like, like I mean, school psychologist, licensed mental health professionals. I think Gunn has a child psychiatry fellow that comes half a day a week to meet with students that need more help. So all of those things didn't really exist or just weren't talked about when I was there in 2010. So schools are doing everything that they can to to make sure to avoid tragedies but unfortunately like you know if there's a waterfall like and you're and there's just like a bunch of like logs falling off the waterfall it's just hard to really you know create a net to catch everyone that needs help Mm -hmm. you know um so i think schools are doing what they can i don't think they're the only player in kind of mental health. I think, you know, parents have a role, friends have a role, mm-hmm. um, teachers have a role, um, coaches have a role. There's a lot of people. Great. Um, so I think that's all the time we have for questions today. But there, like I said earlier, there definitely were a lot of really good ones that you guys submitted. So I'm sorry that we couldn't answer all of them today. But hopefully uh, we will have answers for those in a little bit of time. So thank you, Barat, for coming in today and sharing all of your insight with us. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our audience today? Um, I think uh, one thing I would suggest um, that you all do is go to that website that I mentioned, uh, herdalliance.org. Um, just to see all the resources that are out there. They've also got um, kind of this toolkit that is accessible to all K through 12 schools in California, um, talking about pre-suicide, during suicide, post-suicide mental health efforts. And it also has a database of like mental health professionals in the area that you can contact. And on the top of the page, it's got like crisis hotlines that you can call and or text if you need um help. So it's a very, very um, cool website with a lot of information. And there's an FAQ section, which has like a bunch of questions that high school students have had over the years mm-hmm. that you can read through. Great. Um, is there any way that an audience member could contact you with a really quick question? Oh, yeah. So if you have a question uh, for me, you could contact me at uh, uh, barat.sready at gmail.com. Um, B-H-A-R- at dot s r e d d y at gmail.com um and yeah if you just need some advice on something or or want to ask more about resources that are available in the community i'd be um 
I'd love to answer. Great. So once again, thank you, Barat, for coming in and speaking today. And also thank you for to our audience for tuning in to the special episode. If you would like to be a guest speaker, contact us through email at studio.projectoyster at gmail.com, or you can just shoot us a DM at Project Oyster on Instagram. We'd love to help any of you guys in sharing your stories. To learn more about Project Oyster and our mission, mission visit our website at studioprojectoyster.com, or you can check out the TEDx speech I gave a few weeks ago on speaking up in the face of stigma, where I talked a little bit about how Project Oyster got started. Once again, thank you for listening and we'll see you in the next episode.